audio parfait. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. Go to their Instagram or Twitter at the underscore gallery to see just a few of the prints that they have available. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off of their purchase by using the code 15 off. Go to thegallery.com. That's the G-A-L-R-Y.com. So your wall will never be boring again. going but and I hurt myself like because it hurts my muscles and I was holding my muscles and dancing weird and I don't know it just what, what fucking song was on before you were dancing Colt 45 by Aquaman no you were singing that how about before earlier today I don't remember uh, yeah, you are standing right next to me dancing and I was trying to do work and you're standing next to me dancing there were a lot of songs I like to I miss dancing mm-hmm. period well, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. And we are... On episode three of Douglas Adams. Right. Episode, the final episode. The final episode. Let's find out how this all plays out. I think we all know how it's going to play out. Well, yeah. Okay, so when we last left Douglas, he was supposed to be working on So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. But he had decided to find something else to do since he really didn't want to write the book. That meant buying and playing with all the gadgets he could get his hands on. Cameras, music equipment, including a synthesizer called Zaphod, and of course, computers. Douglas, uh, he, he, he loved computer games. Uh, I mean, he loved computers in general. There's a, a store while they're building their new house, at, which we'll be getting to here in a minute. But while they're building their new house, he had a... Um, an office upstairs that had close to 200 outlets in it. Damn. Just so he could plug in all his toys. I bet he could beat Oregon Trail because nobody else could. Yeah. (laughs) But his electric bill was probably super high. They said that when he would... uh, turn everything on in there, you could get a smell of ozone and there was a drag in the city's power grid. (laughs) Damn. But Douglas quickly grew tired of the basic space space invader style shoot-em-ups then available to gamers. He was particularly keen on the storytelling ingenuity in the text adventure games created by American coders, Infocom, and mentioned his admiration for the company, to Simon & Schuster executives, remarking that, unlike most games, there was some real wit and intelligence involved. He was at first furious when he discovered that the executive took this as a cue to approach Invocom with an offer for a hitchhiker license, unhappy to be seen as a commercial pawn. But the idea of having his own universe meddle with the minds of thousands of gamers, doing something entirely new in the fresh field of interactive fiction, 
was genuinely exciting. With a clear need to flex some muscle and regain control of Hitchhiker for this new entertainment arena, Simon and Schuster were called off while Ed Victor dealt directly with Infocom, landing a reported seven-figure deal for Adams to collaborate on six games, beginning with an initial Hitchhiker adventure, which, once again, would return Arthur Dent to his demolition nightmare, but this time it would be the player's job to decide where he went from there. Hmm. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll get to the, uh, a game that they end up making, and it, it sounds like my worst nightmare. Oh, okay. I like just straightforward RPG. Give me a guy, point me in a direction, tell me to shoot people, and that's what I do. I'm... I have a hard time with the video games where I got to do all these other things just to make this happen and then go uh, drives me fucking crazy. I don't have the patience for it. You don't like tasks in the game. I don't like tasks, period. But you like Assassin's Creed and that's full of tasks. Only if you decide to do the tasks. You can go just a straightforward these this needs to be taken care of if you want. Or you could do all the side quests. I do some of the side quests, but I don't do all of them, because fuck that. I I like games that make you think and you have to strategize and you have to use your your brain and, you know, it could lead you on multiple different paths. Yeah, it's like those uh, world building games or um, all the uh, cell phone games that are out now that you you, got to build communities. I fucking hate that. Hate it. They take a very, very long time. I hate it. We did the Simpsons one and the Family Guy one for a long time, and then it all of a sudden it was, in order to get anywhere, you got to start buying shit. And the only reason I played them was because it was Simpsons and Family Guy. If it was anything else, I would have said fuck it long before I finally said fuck it. But that's just me. Through much of 1984, Douglas devoted much of his time to the computer game. Too much time. Soon, the patient people of Pan had to corner the author and find out just how on track the fourth book was. And the guilty shrug they received sparked pandemonium. Sonny explained to Ed that no matter what Douglas had begged him to suggest, there was absolutely no possibility of an extension. The publicity drive was planned to perfection. The cover was ready. The printers were warm. They just needed the manuscript, and failure to deliver was in no way an option. Realizing with mere weeks to go that Douglas only had a meager 25 pages to show for his headline-generating advance, Sonny and Ed visited the flat in St. Almond's Place for an extraordinary meeting where it was decided that in the morning, Douglas would present himself at the Berkeley Hotel where a suite had been booked, taking with him spare clothes, a typewriter, and a special luxury, one guitar. Meta, meanwhile, had a tower of manuscripts brought over from Pan, and a Betamax VCR set up to keep him entertained with a stack of classic movies inspiring Ford's preoccupation with Earth cinema, while his errant author spent proper working days at the keyboard getting Arthur's last experiences down on paper under constant supervision (laughs) they literally locked him away in a hotel and wouldn't let him leave until he finished the book that's how bad it got yeah i could i could see that 
Well, at the end of each day, Sonny would read the results, usually offering qualified encouragement as there was no time for rethinking. They would have dinner together, and then the millionaire best-selling author would be sent to bed to prepare for another long day's on-the-spot composition in the morning. Douglas hunched over his old typewriter under Sonny's gaze, trying to create under duress, his fingers clattering over the keyboard, not always storytelling, but often typing, who the fuck does he think he is, and similar pages of choice abuse before removing the paper from the typewriter, giving his captor a reside smile, and hurling the screwed up pages into the trash. Where <laughs> Sonny would eventually find them, proudly display them on some of Pan's notice boards for everyone to enjoy. <laughs> This frustrating and humiliating experience has gone down in publishing history, the legend of the procrastinating author, but with three decades hindsight, the very idea of any top novelist being expected to deliver a massively anticipated new work in less than a year while creating a computer game from scratch seems a foolhardy arrangement from the start. Of course, plan worked. After two weeks, the pair emerged from the Berkeley with a manuscript containing a beginning, a middle, and an end of sorts, and proceeded to get so rip-roaringly drunk together that they all but wiped the memories of the past two weeks. The more I hear about the man, the more I love him. Meadow would never go through anything like this again, though the next time a deadline had Adam's name on it, it's his newly appointed literary editor, Sue Freestone, an incisive and crucially eminently patient American publishing expert, would have the job of coaxing the final full stop out of him. The book, which resulted from Douglas' fortnight of imprisonment, although the slimmest hitchhiker volume for obvious reasons, went on to be another bestseller, but in short time, fans and authors seemed largely, largely in agreement that it was the weakest of the books. It was finally published November 1984. Now, things get pretty busy for Douglas in the mid-80s. A lot of things kind of all happen at once over the next three years or so. I'm going to cover them, but the um, chronology of it all might seem off. Like, I'm going to talk about one thing, and then I'm going to jump back and talk about something else. Uh, just keep in mind that everything's kind of happening at the same time, and it's big stuff. Okay. Okay. Douglas was finally done writing Hitchhiker. It was one of the happiest times he ever had. He spent a vast amount of time in 1985 talking about Hitchhiker in the past tense. No deadlines, no pressure to forcefully produce a story he felt he had been done with for three years. He decided to focus his energy on something else, his next computer game, but not a hitchhiker game. Infocom had hoped to continue the book adaptations, picking up the, narr the narrative on the surface of Magarathea, but Douglas insisted that he was suffering from acute sequelitis, and they agreed to defer the next installment until his preferred idea could be brought to life. Bureaucracy. It was another text adventure which took the overriding theme of so much of Adam's comedy and brought it to blatantly center stage. There would be no links to Hitchhiker whatsoever and no science fiction element. It was inspired by his own move to Upper Street 
To his chagrin, he had found his credit cards had been invalidated, for they had sent his new cards to his old address, despite the fact that he had filled out a change of address card personally and handed it to them right there at his own branch. Getting the, quote, system to recognize his new location was a torment that lasted for two years. Douglas was provoked into some exciting correspondence, a brief extract from his letter to a Miss Walcox at Barclay. Barclays goes as such. My address is at the top of this letter. It is also at the top of my previous letter to you. I am not trying to hide anything from you. If you write me at this address, I will reply. If you write to me care of my accountant, he will reply, which would be better still. If you write to me at Highbury New Park, the chances are I won't reply because your letter will probably not reach me because I don't live there anymore. I haven't lived there for two years. I moved two years ago. I wrote you about it, remember? Dear Mrs. Wilcox, I'm sure you are a lovely person, and that if I were to meet you, I would feel ashamed of having lost my temper with you in such a way. I'm sure it's not your fault personally, and that if I had to do your job, I would hate it. Let me take you away from all this. Come to London. Let me show you where I live, so you can see that it is indeed in Upper Street. I will even take you to Highbury New Park, and introduce you to the man who has been living there for the past two years, so that you can see for yourself that it isn't me. I could take you out to dinner and slip you little chains of address cards across the table. We could even get married and go live in the villa in Spain, though how do we get anyone in your department to understand that we have moved? I've enclosed a copy of my new book, which I hope will cheer you up. Happy Christmas, yours truly. <laughs> He's such a fucking smartass. In revenge, he was inspired to write Bureaucracy, in which the player finds himself unable to get his own money after moving to Paris. Once, via a series of bureaucratic mishaps, he ends up somewhere very much stranger. An Indiana Jones-style epic quest to have your change of address card recognized by the powers that be. Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, you, it's, it's, a, it's a text adventure game. you got to go through all these little adventures just so they will start sending you the stuff that you're supposed to have to your actual address. <sighs> but can you get ran over by a big boulder? Maybe. I don't know. I've never played. <laughs> so, again, everything's kind of happening at once. Douglas's stepmother called him and his sister Sue down to Drautwich Spa Hospital in June of 1985, where their father was in critical condition, having progressed from teacher to parole officer to management consultant and lecturer, the middle-aged Mr. Adams made a point of keeping fit and exercising as he dealt with high blood pressure. Despite this, Christopher passed away that June at the age of 58. Unfortunately, it was very shortly after the dutiful Douglas had been excused his long bedside vigil for a quick sleep, which he described as bloody typical dad. That's sad. Douglas had received a call from the Observer magazine, the color supplement published every week with the Observer, one of Britain's quality Sunday newspapers, went a little like this. Voice from the Observer. Do you fancy going to Madagascar? Douglas. Um, who's that again? Voice. The Observer magazine. You know, the Observer. Rather good Sunday broadsheet. Do you fancy going to Madagascar with a zoologist and look for the eye-eye? Douglas. 
I.I. what? Voice. The I.I. A rare, very shy, nocturnal lemur. It's got beautiful eyes. Douglas. Have you got the right person? I'm a humorous science fiction writer. <laughs> Later, Douglas was the joke that he said yes before they found out they had the wrong person. But they did have the right person. The World Wildlife Fund. The WWF. <laughs> and the Observer had gotten together with a scheme to send riders and experts into the world to find endangered species. The riders would have the freshness of per perception that comes from complete ignorance of the subject, and the experts would furnish the background and specialist knowledge. Douglas would be the eyes through which the urban Sunday newspaper reader would see something wonderful that was quite outside his or her everyday experience. The epitome of Islington Man would voyage, if not into the heart of darkness, then to well beyond the restaurant belt. Douglas, of course, overpacked for the excursion. The typical pants and socks, yes, but also a computer, books, various cameras, and extension zoom lenses. Mark Carwarden is a delightful person, tall, dark, passionate about his subject. He has a slight, slightly melancholy air of a man who is committed who is a committed environmentalist on a planet whose dominant species seems hell-bent on its destruction. Quote, We don't even know what's out there, or what it could do before we wipe it out. Who would have thought that the Madagascar periwinkle, for instance, will provide us with a drug for leukemia? Then, only in his late 20s, he was five years younger than Douglas, Mark and Douglas hit it off almost immediately. Both men were severely put to the test, especially on their travels in 87 and 88, when they are away from their home on and off for 18 months, often in stressful circumstances. Their relationship, especially when they were both short of sleep, oscillated between extremes of affection and irritation. And in the end, affection almost always won out. Hmm. The trips to Madagascar opened his eyes to a new way of thinking. He was a man that always looked at life on a galactic scale, and in doing so, he sometimes he would sometimes be ignorant of some of the things happening right here on Earth, on a small island off of Africa to a small species of lemur. He didn't become some type of eco-warrior. He gave to Greenpeace, but he wasn't about to be chased down by Japanese whalers in the Arctic Ocean. He was profoundly influenced by his friend Richard Dawkins and intrigued by the strange details of what Mark had told him about various endangered species. His fascination was quite unconventional. It wasn't so much a matter of observing the strange behaviors, bizarre instincts, offbeat mating procedures, and so on, that these rare creatures might manifest. What he wanted to imagine was the world as these animals might perceive it. It was for that reason that Douglas was so stricken by the fate of the Yangtze dolphin, which assembled its model of the environment through sound. Or, what does the world look like if it's mapped mainly by smell? The rhino, with its colossal nasal membranes, larger than their brains, and terrible eyesight, would have seen Douglas like some obsolete computer screen without enough pixels. But they could have smelled him on the wind half a kilometer away. Sight is effectively instantaneous, but smell isn't. Douglas's insight here was to realize that as a result of the rhino's view in the world, is rich with the sense data of things past. In a way, they see in time. Which, I mean, technically we all do. Nothing's... It, it, it's the light hits you, then hits my eyes. In that amount of time, that's how long it's been, you know. It's 
millis of a mill of, it, 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 it's almost instantaneous, but it's not instantaneous. Right. So you're it, always technically looking into the past, just yes. not very far into it. Right. November 1985 in a hotel room in New York. Again, we're bouncing around a little bit. Douglas sat googly-eyed, oscillating between fear and joy, while Ed Victor conducted the American auction for Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and its sequel, the UK rights having gone to Heinemann and Pan again. Douglas had been yearning to escape from Hitchhiker and Dirk Gently, a hero so cool that his mind owed more to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle than traditional deduction, and the means whereby he planned to tunnel out past the perimeter guards and barbed wire entanglements of his previous work. Round by round, the bidding went up until it eventually stopped when Simon & Schuster acquired the two titles for a smidgen over $2.2 million. Damn. And they fucking canceled the show! Then a division of Paramount, Simon & Schuster was a powerful force in the marketplace and had never been leery of levering, levering open its giant checkbook for what it wanted. Despite his massive advance, Douglas was always satirical about Simon & Schuster. Quote, It's one of those companies where you know that everyone's lip gloss will be perfect, but you're not sure if they've ever read a book. <laughs> oh, like some of the people I went to high school with. Simon Schuster is still <laughs> a huge, huge publishing company. They do most of Stephen King's stuff. Uh, anytime you listen to an Audible book, is, this book has been presented by Simon Schuster. It, it, they're huge. <clears throat> One of the things Douglas did with all this money was buy property. By this time, he and Jane had become friends with their neighbors, Rick Paxton and Heidi Lockler who lived a little further down St. Albans Place. They were starting up their own architectural practice. It was a happy coincidence that Douglas and Jane were looking for somewhere else to live, a place they could create together. Eventually, they found a magnificent Georgian house on Duncan Terrace, a few minutes' walk from St. Albans Place, and they commissioned Rick and Heidi to design and build a new interior for it. Douglas, with his never-ending imagination, wanted many changes, and with home remodeling, a number of issues usually rise. The work continued through 86 into 1987. The expense was substantial. This is the house that he has with the office with the 200 uh, outlets. outlets. He's got a, he ends up getting a gigantic stereo. So like a 30,000 pound uh, dollar amount, yeah. uh, stereo system just for their living room so he can have parties. It's and this is thirty thousand pounds in nineteen eighty seven. So it'd be more expensive. Today. Yeah, we were we'd be looking at like seventy to eighty thousand today. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a whole thing with he wants a pool in the basement, so they got to dig down into it. Uh, they tear up the back garden. It, it's a whole him and and uh, Jane have big fights over it. it it's a whole thing. I didn't really get into the building of the house because it's a lot of shit, but it's a it's an or deal. Well, he has expensive taste. He has very expensive taste and he likes things to be very particular and once he gets them the way he wants them, he realizes that he wants them different and they have to change everything. Cuz it wasn't as big or extravagant as 
It's just, he, it wasn't what it, it was. It could have been. Well, the fact is, and they, and they go through all this shit to get like the pool in the basement and do all this other stuff that he wants. And at the end of at the end of it, they end up just gutting the whole basement. And his sister and his little sister, uh, little Jane, ends up moving downstairs in there while she's taking her nurse courses. So honestly, did all all of that for nothing. He could build an outdoor pool, but it it is England and yeah. it doesn't get very warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's around this time that Douglas uttered his remark, cherished in literary circles, that writing was just a matter of sitting in front of a blank piece of paper until your forehead bleeds. He had spent a lot of 86 editing the utterly, utterly Merry Comic Relief Christmas book, to which he had given his time for free, but which proved more demanding than he had expected. The book is of particular interest to fans of Douglas Adams, Douglas Adams' work, as it contains several items written by him, which are hard to find or exclusive to the collection, besides the novella Young Zaphoid Plays It Safe and the short story The Private Life of Genghis Khan, which have since appeared in The Salmon of Doubt. The book also contains Adams' short story A Christmas Fairly Story, written in collaboration with Terry Jones of Monty Python. Awesome. And three supplements of The Meaning of Lift. The book promised that profits would be distributed 80% to the Save the Children's Fund Fund and Oxfam for famine relief and 20% to the charity projects to support young people faced with the problems of drug abuse, homelessness, and disability in Britain. Some famous contributors include Douglas Adams, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean himself, Graham Chapman, Stephen Fry, George Harrison, From Terry Jones, and a multitude of others. Now, the Private Life of Genghis Khan, I believe that's the one. Um, I think I, I think it goes back to a skit that he did when it was Footlights, where Genghis Khan had become such a successful conqueror that he could no longer con- he could no longer focus on conquering. He had to focus on the um, politics of conquering. Like, oh, well, we're going to go raid this town now. Oh, but do we have the money to raid that? I can't raid today. Have to make it next week. I have too much to do to raid. (laughs) That's hilarious. It was unfortunately just at this time that Douglas suffered a major financial blow. Now, do you remember the last episode I told you that we would get back to the accountant thing Mm -hmm. where he splits his money in thirds? Okay. So ever since he started making serious money, he had followed his tripart scheme, third for fun, third for retirement, a third to the accountant for the tax man. Douglas would have been in the 40% tax bracket, but then, you know, authors are allowed to spread their income on the grounds that books may represent several years' labor amid lots of genuine and allowable expenses, so you can kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. That's what accountants are for. This arrangement works satisfactorily until... 1986. Though Douglas could never sustain interest long enough to grasp the detail, this definition from the deeper meaning of lift gives a clue. Swanee bust. Adjective. Completely shagged out after a hard day of having income tax explained to you. <laughs> then, things went seriously wrong. Douglas's accountant had used Douglas's money to pay his own debts having unwisely guaranteed the liabilities of other clients. Unfortunately, 
He was unable to replace Douglas's funds that had been set aside for the revenue. The loss was at least 150,000 pounds. You're fired. Well, it's it's more than that. It's a uh, Douglas battled with whether to pursue criminal charges against the accountant who had a wife and child or had children or to keep it a civil matter. Situation turned darker after the accountant committed suicide. Douglas was distraught at the thought of himself having anything to do with a wife and children becoming a widow and fatherless. He was he was torn up about it for quite a while. I mean, I get that, but that's not his fault. No, but he he's the type of person that's going to see that and, and take it as he had something to do with it. Well, if I hadn't given him all that money, he wouldn't have spent it. And then he wouldn't have been in the situation he was in. He wouldn't have killed himself. That's how his mind works. It, it works back to when he became involved. So he could see the direct line of how it would be his fault. I mean, not I his fault, obviously. It's not, but, but I can see how he would think that. Yeah. I mean, he, people with anxiety, that's how they think. They think things are... He's an empath, and he, I can see how he would think that. But it, it takes a long time for you to realize it's not your fault. Yeah, but it, it tore him up for a while. But back in Madagascar, Mark and Douglas had been delighted to actually find an eye-eye. It was the first official sighting for years, and the only time one had been photographed in the wild. An expedition from National Geographic magazine equipped with helicopters and land rovers and, quote, a budget you could buy one of the smaller nationalized industries with had failed to find one in nine months. Instead, a young zoologist and a science fiction writer had located one in the pouring rain on their second night in the jungle. Well, yeah, it was just two people in the jungle walking by themselves, not a whole bus and helicopter and loud noises and a bunch of shit. Of course, they're going to see it before this whole parade of bullshit. Yeah, but I mean, just to say that it's the only one that's been, it was the only one that had been caught on camera in the wild in years, you got to imagine that other people tried to go find it other than just National Geographic. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It is. It is. They talked to the BBC for a television series, but the budget was too much, so they developed it into a radio series for a radio series for Radio 4. Mark would provide the expertise and Douglas would write scripts and talk. However, the budget still wasn't quite what they were looking for. Heinemann Publishing came to the rescue with an advance for the accompanying book, which Douglas outright demanded be split 50-50 with Mark, even though he was the bigger name. From the advance, they were to pay for their own travel and sound engineer. They had hoped to start their excursion in 86, but Douglas was under too much pressure, so it got put up, put off until near the end of 1987. Most of the traveling took place in 1988. The result of all these commitments that Douglas had was that when he finally got down to work on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, it was screamingly late. Well, of course, everything the man did was late. He'd been thinking about the book on and off for three years, and by the time Sue Freestone started working with him, it was already six months past the, quote, 
this time we really mean it. Absolutely no messing about. This is it deadline. <laughs> right. Douglas had written one single sentence. I almost spit out my tea. However, Sue reports, it was a brilliant one. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency is Douglas's authentic voice, darkly funny, full of fresh innovation, even though it owed something to his Doctor Who plot, overly complex and suffused with anxiety. There isn't the same joke, quote, per line as in Hitchhiker's novels, but overall the effect is just as satisfying. The Electric Monk is a wonderful idea. We have labor-saving devices to spare us effort. Why not an Electric Monk who can believe really stupid things for us? It combines jokes about, about Samuel Taylor Cooleridge, Lamarck, quantum mechanics, chaos theory, academia, Schrodinger's cat, literary magazines, jealousy, and death, all with inadvertently saving the world. It even contains an essay about the connection of music to mathematics and mathematics to the universe. Douglas was regularly at three on the beaten scale when writing Dirk Gently. It was very uphill, and the complexity of the narrative reflects the discontinuously dripping tap of his inspiration. Sue Freestone spent a lot of time in Upper Street. At this point, he had not yet moved to Duncan Terrace providing sandwiches, encouragement, and warmly appreciative feedback after a particularly pleasing page, he would run downstairs from the office like a child who had done something praiseworthy and give it to Sue. <laughs> the schedule for the book was so tight that it was almost a conveyor belt with Douglas at one end and the reading public at the other. By writing on his Apple Macintosh Plus and printing the text on a laser printer as a camera-ready copy, Douglas cut out several intermediate process and shaved a couple of weeks off the production time. Nice. For a man who needs instant gratification. Dirk, well, he needs instant uh, encouragement. And it, adoration. It, it, yes, yes. Dirk Gently was his first book entirely free of the structural inheritance that comes from converting one medium into another. It even looks different on the page and resists slipping comfortably into a category straitjacket. Douglas's own quote on the back of the first edition, and still there today, describes his first Dirk Gently thus. A thumping good detective ghost whore whodunit time travel romantic musical comedy epic. <laughs> I haven't read the book. I want to. And He's got, there's technically three. Okay, well... I know you told me to cool it on buying books. And we are still going to cool it on buying books. We will get to those. You've gone this long without being without reading them. You can go a little longer. You'll be okay. But I still want to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after watching the show, it makes me want to read them even more. Well, the show and the books apparently I know, aren't anything like one another. I know, but just if if there's any sort of resemblance at all from anything i mean just the show was awesome yeah we love the show and fucking sucks that they took it off of after only two seasons that yeah. happens to all the shows they, they should have done they should have put it on bbc not it was on bbc oh was it yes and we watched it on hulu oh yeah well there, maybe it'll come back after you know and that was a few years ago i doubt it i wouldn't hold your breath mm. there is a trajectory 
to Douglas's books, whereby they seem to get darker and more cynical with everyone. Nevertheless, on publication in May of 1987, Dirk Gently went straight into the charts. He was particularly pleased by the success of this book, A Non-Hitchhiker, because it seemed like confirmation that he was a real writer and not just a man with a single brand. The sequel, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, was published by Heinemann in the autumn of 1988 and written from late summer onwards of 1987. It was his first sane publishing schedule for years. Though, as always, the book was delivered under time pressure because of Douglas's long-standing and much postponed promise to go to Australia on a promotion tour. Meanwhile, the improbable hero Dirk Gently reappears, plump, bespectacled, addicted to cigarettes, delinquent about money, randy, yet unfulfilled, given to gnomic utterance, exploitative, guilty, not entirely wholesome, irritatingly right, and possessed of high power but unusually non-linear thought process. Douglas's friend Michael Bywater shares some of these characteristics and says he's not sure whether to be disgusted or flattered to be thought of as the model for Gently. Well, fuck, I share some of those characteristics. Well, you'd be... I want to be Dirk's Gently for Halloween. <laughs> I don't think we're having Halloween this year. Fuck it. We'll just dress up and throw candy at the kids in the yard. <laughs> I want to dress up. in the yard. We just stand there and throw candy at them. Yeah. <laughs> now, by this time, Douglas and Jane had finally moved into Duncan Terrace. Douglas insisted on the unbelievable stereo and grand piano, and the rest of the administrative burden of the move fell to Jane. The mechanics of writing were much the same as before. Sue was on hand for sympathy and feedback. Lisa Glass, the copy editor, also rushed around from time to time to help him chill out. Sometimes Michael Bywater turned up to offer entertainment, stimulation, and dazzling conversations. Once, Sue Freestone recalls Janet appeared. Quote, Douglas had been angsting at me for days about the increasing length of the grass in his back garden in Islington. At this point, I was debating whether to buy a lawnmower and Heinemann expense and cut it myself to shut him up. His mother, Janet, arrived, unannounced, bearing a hover mower, a small, determined woman, a quarter-sized spitting image of Douglas. She marched past us without a word into the garden, unwound the cord, plugged in the mower, marched purposefully up and down until the grass was all cut, unplugged the mower, wrapped the cord around the handle, tucked the whole thing under her arm, and marched out again. Still... Without a word, Douglas and I sat looking at one another in stunned silence. He had not said anything to her about his grass worries, but somehow she just knew. What's more, Janet took the grass clippings all the way back to Dorset. <laughs> God, he's so fucking weird. So not only can he not, he's too important to move his own shit out of his house into his new house. Now he can't deal with his grass clippings in his own yard. They have to be moved out of his... Well, she did it. She, they said that she, they, nobody said a word to one another. She just came over, cut the grass, got all the grass clippings, and left. Oh, my gosh. He's so fucking weird. <sighs> oh, my God. Now, the last chance to see Expeditions took place mostly in 1988. It is his favorite of what he had written. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the book, it is a compelling mix of wittily observed travel log and a natural natural history documentary of the highest intelligence. The story begins with meeting an Australian 
venom specialist, Dr. Struan Sutherland, who advises the two adventurers very sincerely not to get bitten. <laughs> Fortified with this wisdom, Mark and Douglas visit the Komodo dragons, the northern white rhino, the gorillas of Zaire, the kakapu in New Zealand, the river dolphins in Yangtze, and finally, the Rodriguez fruit bat on Round Island, Mauritius. Mauritius, the erstwhile home of the dodo, Douglas considered a significant place in our understanding of life on Earth. Quote, as Galapagos gave us the idea of evolution, Mauritius gave us the idea of extinction. Yeah, that, that is completely accurate. There is a real anger in Last Chance to See that as a species we could be so careless. For instance, it is so improbable that a rhino could have evolved at all that we allegedly thinking primates should cherish its astonishment. The rhino is a bad-tempered, nimble, two-ton, armor-plated animal with a great nose, crappy eyesight, and a complex, multi-chambered biochemical processing plant to digest the otherwise indigestible vegetation and turn it into more rhino or heroic quantities of excrement. That this amazing creature should be shot not even for its meat, but because of two bundles of ossified hair on its nose is beyond belief. The wickedness of the slaughter takes another dimension of stupidity when you realize that the reason is a trade in ceremonial dagger handles as props for Ye Yemeni men to look chunky or to help credulous orientals reduce fever or get erections, for which rhino horns have no value whatsoever. It's basically hair, for Christ's sake. If only more people felt that way. I'm I'm glad he's not alive today to see what people have been doing with the, the lions, the gorillas, and the elephants, and yeah. the other creatures that, because... Well, that stuff was going on then, too. It just, I know, but it's, a, it's so much worse we today. We didn't have a, a flashlight, you know, a spotlight pointed at it. Last Chance to See Radio prog Program aired on Radio 4 in October and November of 1989. It was a success, not on the same scale of Hitchhiker, but still a success. The chemistry between the host, the humor, the soundscape, all covering up the fact that you were learning in the process. Douglas had a natural voice for radio. He was back to doing what he most loved, performing. The book, as usual, followed a more vexed path. Last Chance to See is truly inspirational, and quite a number of current zoologists and related specialists were attracted to their subjects because of it. Douglas was rightly proud of it. As usual, though, the easy reading conversation style was hell to produce. In order to write, he retreated to a rented villa in Wanless Pins, an enchanted but definitely discovered village near Monaco on the Mediterranean coast of France. Mark came out to join him. It was a disaster. Douglas had sunk into one of his states of listless vacancy and infected Mark with the same condition. Every day, they'd get up, have a leisurely coffee, then go for a walk to clear their heads before the serious business. But distractions lay in wait for them. Time stretched, they fell out, they got together again. They'd plan lunch, they'd eat lunch. When their spirits were ebbed, they'd nip to Monte Carlo for some fun. They were suspended in ambiance, marooned in paradise. Their paralysis had a personal cost for Mark, who had a serious girlfriend and was flying back and forth to England most weeks to see her. Somehow, 
Over three months passed without the two of them producing very much at all. Sue Freestone visited them to deliver a righteous kick up the collective rectum. In the end, as deadlines whizzed by, they got down to it. Sue Freestone and her Heinemann colleagues told them, quote, As soon as there's enough for a respectable book, stop. We cannot wait any longer. Two expeditions never made it into the final text. Not because they lacked interest, Douglas and Mark simply ran out of time. It's a pity, as both concern attractive creatures that need all the help they can get. The Juan Fernandez, the Juan Fernandez fur seal of Chile and the Amazonian manatee. Sounded like their periods synced up. And then she came and was like, all right, your period's over. Get back to work. No more sulking it up. Well, it's uh, Douglas has this type of personality where whatever he's projecting, other people kind of get infected with it. So if he's down in the dumps or just doesn't care, doesn't want to do anything, people with him are going to kind of feed off of that. So now they're not wanting to do anything. Well, I mean, I can see that where, like, he he kind of brainwashes his friends, like, hey, yeah, let's not work on it right now. Let's well, go have some fun. Mark couldn't really do a whole lot without Douglas because Douglas was the writer. Yeah. So if Douglas is like, I don't feel like writing, and Mark just kind of has to go along with it, you do that enough, neither one of you are going to get back to writing. Yeah, but I mean, Mark can't enough. blame Douglas. You have to be like, hey, well, no. at some point you have to take responsibility. If, and be if like, you're lazy for long enough, then you stay lazy. True. Uh, the book was published in 1990 by Heinemann and by Pan the following year. Douglas's publishers around the world picked it up too. Most of the critics loved it, especially in America. Atlantic Monthly said it ranked with the best set pieces of Mark Twain. Only Beth Levine, Levine in New York Times was less than ecstatic, an uneven travelogue, but even she found the heroic efforts to save the animals inspirational. Nothing quite like it had ever been written before. Although it did not explode on the market like one of the hitchhikers, it was steadily reprinted. Douglas was mortified, and not just for the reasons of commercial self-interest, that the book did not immediately sell millions. He cared deeply about the message in it, and was inspired by his experience to give time and money to save the rhinos and to Diane Fossey Foundation. Indeed, it was his lecture at the Royal Geographical Society that prompted the UK branch of the Diane Fossey Foundation to write to Douglas. They were thrilled and surprised to receive immediately, by courier, all the cash that he happened to have in the house at the time. Quite a few pounds, a number of dollars, some francs, and a really rather impressive number over 2,000 of Deutschmarks left from a recent tour. Deutschmarks. Yeah. What she said. In 1995, at the behest of the founders of Save the Rhino International, David Sterling and Johnny Roberts, Douglas was even persuaded to put on a rhino costume and go, accompanied by his sister, Little Jane, for a sponsored climb up Kilimanjaro in Kenya. <laughs> oh, I would. I want to see a picture of him in a, in the rhino costume. Douglas was very game and toiled along for miles and miles, slathered in sunblocks so potent it must have been the pharmaceutical equivalent of tinfoil. But he was too large and pink for the tropics. The rhino suit weighed thirty pounds, and the heat could reach over a hundred degrees. He did not reach the top. 
although he was particular to particularly delighted in the response that he got from the children they met on the climb. They shrieked with the kind of happiness, quote, that we in the West are almost embarrassed by. I think he just gets excited about any sort of praise or giddiness that... Well, he loved having... He loved making people happy. Yeah. And seeing all these little kids happy. Because he's wearing a rhino costume. Because he looks goofy. He's fine with it. Yes. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! 1991 was another big year in Douglas's life filled with ups and downs. He sorrowfully joined the crowd at the funeral of his stepfather, Ron Thrift, who was so popular that the entire village of Stallbridge came out in mourning, and his next book was dedicated to him. At around this time, though, at least Duncan Terrace was finally ready for him to move his treasure trove of gadgetry, and it was more welcome still that Jane, that Jane and he crossed the threshold together, inevitably magnetized as they always were. On November 25th, 1991, when Pan threw a special party for Douglas at the Groucho Club to mark the publication of Last Chance to See and to celebrate his third golden pan in the company of exhaustedly sparkling list of his closest friends and all his family, Adams tapped his glass for attention and announced that after a whirlwind 10-year romance, Jane and he had gone and made things official in front of witnesses at Finsbury Town Hall that very afternoon. Aww. The nation's number one celebrity hangout exploded with cheers from the indivisible newlyweds as the friends marveled at the secrecy of the happy event and pondered about the patter of small feet. Only an uncharitable minority mused that the whole thing was staged to justify Adam's epigram, quote, Well, we tried everything else, so we thought we'd try marriage. That's one way to go. Also, in 91, Ed Victor had long campaigned for Adams to turn a brief aside on the starship Titanic from Life, the Universe, and Everything into a full narrative with or without the Hitchhiker regular regulars. Indeed, Adams had been mulling it over as a TV series or a movie for many years when the publishers had pressurized the author to come up with another title 10 months before the wedding he had bowed to the inevitable and decided to, quote, give them what they wanted, 
despite the usage of the title by the, by the ZZ9 fan club for over a decade, his chosen recycled phrase from his first hitchhiker outing this time was, mostly harmless. So, yes, he told the world, Arthur Dent's journey was not yet complete. When Douglas asked how he felt about returning to the stories that had made him a household name, he said, quote, I'd had such a long rest from Hitchhiker. What was good about it, as far as I was concerned, was that it was sort of a perfect vehicle for me to explore the ideas that I'm interested in. I'm no longer bored with it because I haven't done it for seven years. So, let's pull it out of the cupboard. Yes, it seems rather fun. Yes, there's no reason why I can't. I'm allowed to do it. I realized I had a mental block about doing Hitchhiker only because I had allowed myself to get free from it. Now that I am free from it, it's actually quite fun to do again. Adams had a whole mess of half-started story ideas and nebulous concepts to try and recycle this time around, including pages of biographies for Baggy the Runch, now a forgotten founding editor of The Guide, and his time with the Bohogs on, planet, on a planet called Now What? <laughs> which ultimately became one of the many alternative Earths in a minor passage in the book. None of this was gelling together as any kind of cognate, cognate narrative, however, and with 1992 carved in stone as the immovable endgame, the time for booking hotel rooms and bundling the giant procrastinator in the back of a van was drawing near. Luckily, a dream opportunity for delaying progress came along, Melvin Bragg, editor of the ITV Arts Strand, The South Bank Show, contacted Douglas with a request to cover the writing of the new Hitchhiker book on his program, to which the author replied that, with the best will in the galaxy, he wasn't actually writing it. But what about a documentary about the very act of not writing something? The agonies, the procrastinations, the whooshing sound of deadlines speeding by. He could write it, star in it, make it something really special, and get his mind off his current inability to deliver the goods. Sue Freestone is shown explaining to her errant charge that they had four weeks until all hell broke loose, with the book's cover design finalized, the printers ready to roll, and all publicity in place. However, this bit was not wholly fantastical. Nonetheless, another deadline disappeared over the horizon. The South Bank Show episode was broadcast without the accompanying book release, and still, mostly harmless, remained a tangle of disjointed ideas. In March, the inevitable occurred. Sue, once again, had to book an expensive hotel suite, and Adams was back in stir until a coherent novel materialized, with one day's freedom allowed for his 40th birthday. Damn. Writing this novel was agony. Here and there, it reads of Douglas's faking his own voice, the sandwich, sandwich maker passage, for instance. Sometimes trying in vain to create something fresh, he lay on the floor in misery. Sue Freestone gave him affection and encouragement. Michael Bywater came around to entertain, irritate, and stimulate him into writing. Michael says he even wrote some of the stuff that Douglas rewrote. Both Michael and Sue helped him plot the book, and by way of the reward, they promised he could destroy everything so utterly that another title would be out of the question. Together, together, they exhorted him to rise from the dead. Eventually, Michael says Douglas announced that he just could not do it. Michael told him, quote, 
Don't do it then. We're not going to stop being your friends because you didn't finish Mostly Harmless, you schmuck. <laughs> Jane, at home after her day's combat in the legal arena, took a pragmatic line. Her support and tough-mindedness were crucial. The conversation went something like this. Douglas, prostrate. I can't write this book. I just can't do it anymore. Jane, so? <laughs> Douglas, I'll be in breach of contract. I'll have to give the money back. Jane, so? Douglas, but I haven't got the money anymore. I'll be bankrupt. Jane, yes, and so? I can help you do that. It's not the end of the world. So, Douglas had, as Michael said, all the ducks in the row. Everyone he cares about has said, you don't have to do the bloody thing. If you can't do it, you can't do it. You just say, I can't do it, and I can't pay back your advance. Your problem. Page by excruciating page, Douglas wrote a terrific book. Not surprisingly, it was the darkest of the canon. Mostly Harmless was released in October 1992, and, of course, it rapidly became a bestseller. Beguiling fans who had been felt who had felt shortchanged by the previous novel, as Douglas himself complained, his methods, excruciating though they were, tend to work. I mean, they they do. He has an act for not giving up, so that's a great thing. But I think it's amazing that they were able to actually get the fucking thing a good book out of him by telling him. I mean, if you can't do it, then you just you can't do it. Just tell him you can't do it. I mean, that's, it's reverse psychology. Yeah, and it, it fucking worked on a 40-year-old. <laughs> Douglas was always enamored with technology. He saw the internet, books online, and smartphones coming, even from 1991. The legend is that he bought the first Apple Mac to be sold in the UK. And the second. Stephen Fry claims he acquired the third. Without any encouragement, he would go into lecture mode and depending on the mindset, either bore or enthrall his friends about the coming cyber age. He was passionately interested in all aspects of IT, and especially in the things that in the things that it could do that the human mind could not. Douglas's role in Silicon Valley and the whole IT revolution is more subtle and important than it may first appear. His sales in the USA were always huge, especially among high school kids and college students, and with the readership almost certainly more male than female, some of those teenagers grew up to be technologists and engineers of the IT revolution. Certainly, Douglas commanded enormous respect among the techies. When it came to inviting, inventing gadgets, when it came to inventing gadgets, Douglas burst through the barriers of the conventional by posting the fantastic. Why add a cosine key to a calculator when you could be developing an interactive, constantly updating talking encyclopedia with an attitude? It's not too far-fetched to say that the generation of clever American techies grew up with their imagination fired by the guide itself in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The Palm Pilot and the PDA might never have been developed without the seed planted by Douglas a decade and a half before they first came onto the market. Very true. But I'm also thankful for cosine being on the <laughs> the calculator because that helped a lot with trig and calculus well now see what you do is that you never advance to those classes don't ever have to fucking worry about it that's what i did worked great yeah not so much for me babe. Yeah. 
When the idea of joining New Media Technology Company reached Douglas, it was not a bolt from the blue. The ground had been long prepared for him to be receptive to such a, such a suggestion. Robbie Stamp, managing director of the Digital Village, was working as a producer for Central Television in 1991. Quote, I was going to be leaving Central TV for a variety of reasons, and I decided time to set up a company. I'd be looking at a cable opportunity at Central, and I had an idea for a company called Cable City. I'd been examining the economics and had felt that they did not work unless you could do two or three low-cost channels from the same base, technically, satellite sharing and so on. So you had the opportunity of building cable channels and of using the materials you were creating to distribute through other media. So I was talking about this idea to Douglas, and he said, how much would it cost to invest in this company? And I plucked the finger figure out of the air and said, 25,000 pounds. And he said, well, I'm in. And that was that, really. That's how the Digital Village was created. Of course, there were hurdles to overcome. It took some years before the company was funded and running or jogging a bit. Douglas still had a book to write, destined to be published nearly 10 years later as The Salmon of Doubt. And his publishers around the world were getting cheesed off with being kept waiting. For a while, Douglas kept quiet about his interest in the Digital Village, but then Ed was approached by Widenfield and Nicholson to see if Douglas would create, or at least present, a series of non-fiction science CD-ROMs. Douglas had come clean about his interest in TDV, and a meeting was arranged with him, Robbie, Ed Victor, and Douglas's lawyer, Leon Morgan, in Bedford Square, Ed was not thrilled and confessed to Robbie later that his intention had been to squash the idea, but he was won over and became a supporter with a place on the board. Besides, he could see that Douglas was not in the writing vein, and this new venture gave him an interest in stimulating company. With Douglas as the resident genius and brand named, and Apple likely to come in as strategic partners, which they did in 1996, plus some serious TV experience and general management knows from Robbie, TDV looked a good bet. But what would the company actually do? The goal, to quote from the business plan, was the creation of global online consumer transaction business, which will exist on the World Wide Web at its successor. It will sell interactive entertainment and information experiences to a worldwide audience. Nice. Yeah, so bullshit, 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 bullshit. Right. There is a misconception that the company would be mainly a vehicle for Douglas's talents, but although his presence was essential, TDV was always planned to be much broader than that. It was one of the new generations of multimedia organizations being made possible by new technology. There were to be three planks on which TDV would rest. First, the Hitchhiker's Guide, H2G2, a guide to the Earth in this case, not the galaxy would be created as a next-generation internet service, a huge, living miscellany of useful information and opinion offering its users much more than a directory or a search engine. It would be a semi-detached source of cool information or a portal out, of the, out to the World Wide Web. The idea was that it would become something innovative and altogether warmer by providing society and for fostering a sense of personal belonging. Community is an overused word, 
But H2G2, with its legions of passionate fans, stood a good chance of becoming one of the first virtual communities with a truly cross-cultural and international nature. Second, there was Starship Titanic, a massive CD-ROM game of staggering visual panache and narrative complexity for which Robbie had closed a co-production venture with Peter Unick at Simon & Schuster Interactive in New York. Simon & Schuster would put up the money, which was originally budgeted at over $2 million. This sum was immediately negotiated downward in a typical corporate reflex that caused TDV problems from the onset. TDV would create and manage the project and have a 50% share of revenues. A linked website would provide further extensions of the brand. Finally, TDV planned to develop a second multimedia brand, Avatar, and later Avatar Forest, which would appear first as a low-cost, long-running, one-hour television series for Disney ABC. In turn, they hoped it would generate a 3D virtual world based on the series. All the joint ventures would be 100% funded by the outside partners with their deep pockets and distribution muscles, and this would lessen TDV's financial risk in the early years of business. Way to go, Douglas. I mean, it kind of sounds like a lesser Sheldon Cooper. (laughs) He's he's, he's trying to uh, become a media, not a medium, but an internet mogul. Before there were internet moguls, really. Yeah, yeah, sort of. <clears throat> but before TDV could take off, another mile, major milestone would occur to Douglas. He would finally meet the one person he loved more than anyone. The one thing that he was most proud of creating, and the least complicated relationship he would ever or will ever have. One on June 22, 1994, Jane gave birth to Polly Jane Rocket Adams. Rocket? The rocket being a nod to one of Jane's pregnancy cravings instead of the wondrous and yet crude way of getting to space. Rocket pops? Uh, No, I believe a rocket is a type of sandwich. Oh, okay. They were immediately smitten. Douglas took every opportunity to show everyone he saw the mountain of photographs he constantly carried with him. Even though pretty much all newborns look alike, except yours, of course, yours is always cutest. A year after Polly's birth, Douglas and Jane held a party in her honor. Douglas, as a committed atheist, would not hear of her being dunked by some, quote, soggy-minded cleric in an unhygienic stone bath full of cold water. Yet, he felt like new life in general, and Polly's in particular, needed to be celebrated. Douglas and Jane devised a sort of secular christening and called upon their formidable collection of mates with histrionic talent to provide some inspiring performances. It could have been funny, all those London fashionables tiptoeing around the forbidden God word, but actually, we are told, it was touching. After they all got thoroughly mellow in Duncan Terrace on generous lashings of champagne, about a dozen pieces were read. Little Polly was either in her parents' arms or crawling about beneath the piano, looking amazed. Johnny Brock, also an ungodparent, parent 
contributed a deed, a contract that all the ungod parents were to sign and abide by for the proper raising of the Adam's child. The contract went like this. This deed is made the 24th day of June, 1995, between Douglas Noel Adams and Jane Heisenith Felson, the parents of the first part, and Sue Leticia Lloyd Roberts, Mary Mabel Allen, Michael Caligula Bywater, and Jonathan Simon Brock, of the second part, whereby the parties intend to contract for the benefit, soak your well-being, and support of Polly Jane Rocket Adams, the child, and is hereby agreed as follows. 1. The parents of the second part are intended by the parents each to assume the role of non-denominational guardian or vicarious supreme being substitute, but will hereafter, for the sake of convenience, only be referred to as the godparents. 2. This deed is non-gender discriminatory, and where the contract so admits, the feminine shall also include the masculine, and vice versa. 3. The parents hereby covenant with the child and with the godparents as follows. Subline 1. To bring up the child in a supreme, supreme being, fearing, and sober manner. Subline 2. To lavish her with love and infection. Subline 3. Not to be too horrid to her boyfriends, however spotty or malodorous they may be from time to time. Four, the godparents hereby each and severely covenant with the child and with the parents as follows. Subline one, to be jolly good chaps or chapettes at all material times. Subline two, to commiserate with the child as to the assassinability and downright curmudgeonness of the parents. Subline three, female godparents to take the child on bracing walking holidays in Iceland. Subline 4. Male godparents. To do bugger all until the child is 16 and thereafter to take her on long weekends to Venice, whereat the waiters will oogle a child and cast admiring and envious glances at the godparents. Subline 5. Lloyd Roberts. To foster in the child the spirit of independent enterprise and downright rank foolhardiness. Subline 6. Allen. To teach the child how to be very important person indeed. Subline 7. Bywater. To tutor the child in the ways of boozing, whoring, falling down drunk, shooting up, down, in every which way, and playing the piano like unto an angel. Subline 8. Brock. To rant. Whereat these parties have this day hereunto signed and affixed their seals, witnessed by, and they sign, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Oh my, I don't even, she's 25. Who's 25? Douglas's daughter. Yeah. She's 25. I do not want to know what she's like today, if that's how they were to raise her. All in good fun. Douglas himself made a short speech about how profoundly his worldview had changed for the better since the birth of little Polly. There's actually a segment on, on the, uh, um, the speech in there. I didn't put it in here because it's kind of long and sappy. But now, heaven forbid a father be sappy for his firstborn daughter. Mm. Now the TV, the TDV team set aside the Avatar project for the for the time being and focused all their efforts on creating the H2G2 website and the computer game. 
but with some stalls and an error on their part for not taking a three million pound buyout because they overvalued what they thought the company was worth, they didn't get truly started on the game until 1996, and it was due in 1997. An improbable hill to climb. The story of Starship Titanic itself is deceptively simple, and and characteristics of Douglas' view of the human condition, you're on your own, the world doesn't quite make sense, and it operates according to the rules that you haven't yet worked out. The player has to negotiate an upgrade to a higher class of cabin, while the desk bot politely but intractably closes off every rational route to that goal. That seems neat. You have to outwit a computer. Simultaneously, a talking bomb is counting down to detonation and the player has to regularly defuse it since the bomb has a persuasive habit of rearming itself. Ooh. The ship ship is deserted apart from a demented parrot and a weird collection of nicely observed bots, some of whom will drone on about their war wounds at heartbreaking length. The key to success in the game is talking to the bots, and this takes discretion and subtlety, for first-class minds have invested ingenuity in making the job horribly tricky. There is a gigantic language engine built into the game. If you are so minded, you can talk to it for 14 hours without it repeating itself. See, I'd probably do that just for fun, (laughs) but other people might not. There are over 3,000 sentences and phrases available to the bots, and they have a surprising range of cultural references at their disposal. It's a colossal game that requires no less than three CDs to run. Wow. And there are probably 90s references from the the UK. Well, many Britain, cultural references. Or England. So, <clears throat> Not surprisingly, such a groundbreaking game took longer to produce than they had planned, a grim outcome because the revenue from the game was effectively their only source of income. If they ran out of money before the game was on the market, they'd be bust. If they got more money from Simon & Schuster Interactive, they would delay the receipt of their own income from the game, possibly for years. What's more, they would miss the Christmas 1997 market and run the risk that at launch it would be stillborn. It's often impossible to rekindle excitement if something is announced, then delayed. Nearly all the company's efforts were now directing into getting Starship Titanic finished while a small team maintained the H2G2 site, though it was not commercialized. The website venture Taking second place compounded Robbie's difficulties in raising money for his multimedia company was now engaged on only one product. I I don't think publishers for books, games, or anything like that should put out a release date until the author is actually done with the editing process. Yeah, I'm not sure how that all works, but they have a reason for everything they do, I suppose. I mean, because if Douglas's work is so good with him being rushed, 
think of how good it could have been if he actually had the time to work on it. But also think of what would happen if he didn't have a deadline. You just said, get it done wherever you get done. He He'd probably would have never, never done. It done. Yeah. He'd probably never do it. That's true. Now, Pan wanted to issue a novel along with the release of the game. Douglas simply couldn't write it. He was stretched too thin the way it was. So, Michael Bywater had come up with the idea that he could write the novel himself. He would hold up with his Apple computer plenty of chocolate, cigarettes, and black coffee, and emerge three weeks later, trembling, bearded, hallucinating, eyes the color of spam, with the novel in his hands. After all, he knew the dialogue and the architecture of the story as well as anyone. Pan agreed. There was no formal offer, but Robbie's email confirms that everybody expected Michael would be writing the book. He was thrilled. Not only would he be paid to do it, for this was a task over and above his contract with TDV, but he also would gain a credential, a novel, albeit with an odd genesis with his name on it. The packaging was going to say, Douglas Adams, Starship Titanic at the top, and the author's name at the bottom. Perhaps, like John Lloyd, Michael also felt a need to show the world that he too could hack it creatively up there with Douglas. In the event, Douglas changed his mind. Jane recalls that he came home after an exhausting day at TDV and told her about the problem over writing of the novel. He was vaguely thinking of giving the book to Michael. Quote, Well, if I were you, I'd vaguely unthink it. You only got a few weeks, and you will not have any options when they're gone. Michael has never finished a book on time, is what Jane told him. Douglas has never finished a book on time, and she's using that reverse psychology bullshit again. So it's like she's saying, do it for the money. One that she's saying, don't give it to Michael because he won't. The, the time constraints are too close. He won't have it done in time and it be good. I mean, it probably wasn't good. Douglas pondered and then phoned his friend Terry Jones of Monty Python and asked him to do it instead. <sighs> Terry, innocent of the history, agreed and managed to write a more than competent good-natured novel in only three weeks. Pretty impressive. It does not catch fire on the page like one of Douglas's, but it does the job. Pan published it just before Christmas of 1997, when the shelves of book trade were so swollen with stock that it's almost impossible to shoehorn in another title. It sold about 80,000 copies. Not bad. Nothing like the sale of Douglas Adams' novel. Michael was irate. To say he was upset would be like describing the U.S. Navy as a bit miffed about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that, that would make sense. He felt betrayed. He believed that he had been made to look foolish in front of publishers in the U.K. and the States. For a man like Michael, who bears his intelligence like a banner before him, this was humiliating. The worst part, just like with John Lloyd... He told Michael in a letter. Doesn't have the balls to say shit. Again, do it in a letter. This is how it's going to be. 
if you do it face to face, person can talk you back into it. I know, but still, have courage, mm. deal with it. Well, the schism between the two was deep and did not repair itself the way it had with John. The team gave it their best, but they missed the Christmas market and ended up putting the game out in April of 98. The financial loss was too much for the company to bear when Thomas Hoag of Art Alliance, an enlightened Norwegian-American venture capitalist company and an early investor in the company, expressed interest in Starship Titanic, it made perfect sense to restructure the game's division and for TDV to be relaunched as H2G2, concentrating solely on building the Earth edition of the guide. In September 1998, Thomas Hogue and Robbie closed the deal for Starship Titanic and all its associated intellectual property to be transferred to Arts Alliance. It seemed like a good new home. H2G2 is still up and running. I have an account there. Ooh. Mm -hmm. You can you just look up H2G2 and pull it up, get an account, and just start talking with Hitchhiker fans. That's it's, awesome. It's actually pretty neat. With the game all but a bust and H2G2 up and running, Douglas focused on writing The Salmon of Doubt, the third Dirk Gently book, and speaking on the lecture circuit. Douglas loved going to college and speaking with kids and other lectures about writing and technology, physics, philosophy, or pretty much anything else he could. Talking one-on-one -on -one with students or faculty, given his giving his ideas and opinions, was when he was at his best. The only real hiccup in this was being diagnosed with diabetes and high blood pressure, just like his father. So he began going to the gym to work on his health. He wanted nothing else but to be around to watch Polly grow old, and become whatever she wanted. Over the next few years, Douglas would de dedicate himself mostly to enjoying playing with Polly, doing lectures, and he also sp spent a good amount of time trying to sell the Hitchhiker movie. Also at this time, the family settled into a new glamorous gated community in the village of Montecito in Santa Barbara. Now with the movie, they ended up going with Disney, through Touchstone Pictures, with a $45 million budget, about half of what Douglas felt he needed to bring his vision to life. Adams insisted that he couldn't bear for the film to be dismissed as cheesy. And Victor exclaimed, quote, Hitchhiker is cheesy. That's its charm. It's not Star Wars. You keep wanting to make Star Wars with jokes, but it's not. I could see where he thinks it's not cheesy because it's, he just wanted the, the jokes to be kind of like subtle. And well, British. Yes. But it, it, it was still awesome. It looked as if, even with some bumps in the road, the movie was well on its way to being made. Work was, prese was proceeding slowly, but steadily. They had, they had um, actually had... Uh, Jim Carrey was supposed to play the part of Zaphoid Beeblebrox, and Hugh Laurie was going to be Arthur Dent. I'm I'm glad he Hugh Laurie was not Arthur Dent. I... Well, if you look back at the TV show, that's Arthur Arthur Dent was actually closer to what Hugh Laurie was than um, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Uh, Morgan. Martin Freeman. 
Uh, Arthur's supposed to be tall. Arthur's supposed to be a lot like Douglas Adams. Tall, kind of gangly. Like Hugh Laurie. Smart, not like Martin Freeman. Yeah, but I, I I think for that type of movie, Martin Freeman was the... Well, they Hollywooded up and they American it up. And I, I think, yes, that he was probably the better choice. If, if it would have been, if it was stuck closer to the books, Hugh Laurie probably would have been better for it. But making the movie that they made, Martin Freeman was was a good choice. Well, I mean, I've seen Hugh Laurie in a couple comedies and... Well, that's what he was. He was a comedian before he ever did House. He, he was yeah. a comedian. He did. He was in Fry and Laurie for a long time. I know. I just, I think, I don't think it's the right type of humor for him. Oh, I think it's the perfect type of humor for him. But see, I think you keep getting stuck on the whole house thing. No, I'm not stuck on, the, I've seen him in other movies. Like, he was also in The Borrowers. And, um, he was in a couple other movies. But I've, again, that's portraying... That's him doing American Hollywood no, stuff. He was doing his... He kept his original accent. Yeah, I understand he kept his original accent, but he's doing Hollywood movies. If they wouldn't have done it a Hollywood movie, if it had been a British movie, he would have done just fine. It would have followed the British... It would have been the Monty Python, Doctor Who, Douglas Adams type humor. But since they Americanized it, Change it. The jokes oh, weren't yeah, the jokes so. weren't subtle, and the British humor is very subtle. But the work was proceeding slowly but steadily until May of two thousand one. May eleventh, two thousand one, Douglas hopped into his Mercedes five hundred and drove to the gym as usual. In the gym, Peter, his personal trainer, put him through the routine that had been especially de- devised for him. 20 minutes on an aerobic stair, ma- stair machine to be followed by stomach crunches. If you had tried a stair machine, you will know that pretty soon rivulets of sweat run like molten lead down your back. The thighs seem the thighs seem to point of spon- seem on the point of spontaneous combustion. But although the regimen was hard work, it was not dangerously excessive for a man of Douglas's age and general state of health. He wore a heart monitor, and Peter was there to keep an eye on him. It was Douglas's habit to stop by after to stop by after his exercise session at the Oogles House, handily just opposite Planet Platinum Fitness. They'd have coffee, boast about their children, and shoot the breeze. Chris Ogle relished Douglas's appearance, looking righteously exercised at his home. With the anguished clarity of retrospect, he suspects that Douglas may have suffered a minor heart attack about a week before. On that day, after his session in the gym, Douglas had, as usual, stopped by, but in an uncharacteristically distressed state. He was pale, very tired, he had to lie down, and he slept for hours while Chris busied himself preparing for a business trip to South Africa. Waking, much revived, Douglas was still concerned about a slight tingling in his arm. However, his local hospital did some tests, and could detect nothing wrong. Or nothing serious. The health scare the previous week hadn't put Douglas off his regimen, so on this day, the 11th, as usual, he had finished with the torture of the step machine and was ready for the stomach crunches. 
Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fans will recall that Douglas attributed to the humble towel a miraculous potential for resurgence and utility. There's a fruit who really knows where his towel is. You may be touched to learn that feeling faint from the rigors of the machine, Douglas picked up his towel from Peter and clutched it to himself before lying down on the bench. Peter glanced away for a second. When he looked back, he thought that Douglas was messing around. Still holding onto his towel, he had rolled quietly off the bench. He had fainted. Peter called an ambulance, which effectively sped Douglas off to the hospital. He never regained consciousness. He had suffered a catastrophic cardiac arrest. Astonishingly, nearly instantaneously, as it turned out, and mercifully without pain. His huge heart had failed him. Jane said he just stopped like one of his beloved computers crashing and failing to reboot. Jane Belson passed away peacefully during her sleep September 7th, 2011, after suffering from cancer for many years. Polly is now a keeper for the Clapton Community Football Club. You can find her at Polly J.R. Adams on Twitter. She's a great follow, like I imagine her father would be. Over the years, Douglas's books have sold over 17 million copies. The Hitchhiker film was finally made two years after his death, and Dirk Gently got a TV series, although short-lived, where else but on the BBC. He has given us lots of excellent jokes, many expressions that entered the general currency of the language, and a great deal of pleasure. Not all of it innocent. He was serious and funny, seriously funny. And that, my intergalactic friends, is the life of one Douglas Adams. That wasn't for you. That was for Douglas Adams. Okay. I need instant reassurance, by the way. You don't need instant gratification. It's not gratification. Reassurance. And it's not reassurance, it's assurance. No, I'm I'm sure, but I need to be reassured. <sighs> you need a dictionary. <laughs> well, what did you think? I loved it. Yeah. That was the that that is my if, as long as I can get my wife to love the story. That that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes it worth it. God damn it! <laughs> If I could, as long as I can get my wife to quit slapping her microphone. And the table. That's what it's all about. It's too confined. I need space to Would move my Would you like me hand. to pull it more this way? No. Okay. <sighs> all right. Well, let's find out what everybody else thought of it. Stephanie, why don't you give it our socials? On Instagram and Twitter, <laughs> we are at openafingbook. I am at ECJBAT. And we are also at Audio Parfait. I am young, etam six on inner on on, on inner. Tw- <laughs> I almost put Instagram and Twitter together on in, in Twitter or, or Twittergram. Uh, young etam six on Twitter, young etam on Instagram. Uh, again, I didn't put all the shit on the bottom like I normally do, so I'll just kind of wing it. Email us at info at audioparfait.com. 
Tweet us or, e- or email us and tell us what you thought of the story. Uh, if there's any authors you would like for us to cover, just just pretty much anything you want to say to us, we're, we're open to it. You can find us on Goodreads at www.goodreads.com slash audio parfait. Yeah, that too. <laughs> no reason to get all long with it. We have changed our Patreon. We have. Uh, we have our stickers from Old Red Sofa on Etsy. They are amazing. Um, you just open up the Spotify app, click on the search bar, click on the camera, take a pic- it's, it scans it. I mean, you barely even get it into the thing and it scans it. Brings the show right up. So if you sign up for our Patreon at the $3 tier or above, you will get free sticker sent to you. Just give us your information. We'll send it right out. Uh, go to the website, audioparfait.com, where you can get all the episodes of this show, plus our weekday Cliff Notes shows, and episodes of our other podcasts. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt, where we cover all the things about what's going on in wrestling that we love and hate. We do a weekly about Rushmore. We're going to start doing bumps of the week where we each decide, we each pick what we feel was the biggest bump of the week and who took it, because, again... We know it's not real, but some of that shit looks like it fucking hurts. They they do take real bumps. Yeah. I mean, it's it's real. Yeah. So this is the end of this series. We got another series starting next week, and it's another first. We will be covering our first black author. Yay! Uh, it's, it's taken us a little while, but finally got there, and it's uh. He might not be a name that everybody knows now. Everybody knew him then. And he produced some of the most important literature in the, well, most important literature for the black community and most important literature in um, America as far as the 1900s onto the 2000s goes. So... If you can take a wild guess on who it is, go ahead and email us or tweet us and, and tell me who you think it might be. Uh, I'll tell you if you're wrong, and I probably won't tell you if you're right because I don't want other people to know. I just won't say anything. Forgetting anything? Cover the Patreon, patreon.com slash audio parfait. This is why I always have to have the thing up so I can remember every little thing that I'm supposed to say. I think that's it. I brought up the Goodreads, brought up the Patreon. All right. Well... If that's it. That's then, it. Guys, take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Between now, the time we get to talk to you next, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys. <laughs>